to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast as we make our way through an off-season which may just be the longest off-season in history if, if uh, things go uh, one way down one, down one path. Uh, Join myself, Stuart Court, on this week's Pedestrian Podcast is, as always, Mr Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? I'm good. Finally, a relaxing month of no English football. Uh, <laughs> my wife is delighted. She can't believe there's more games and that there's more <laughs> games to come. She declared last week that she thought sports were over, full stop. But little does she know, little does she know, we're making a comeback. So hopefully yeah. there'll be plenty more to talk about. I mean, it's like on, every, it's on, for, on for like six, 17 days is it tomorrow. That will it will never stop. It will no? never stop. <laughs> and during that, South, after, we've been, it's been a pretty strong off-season of Seattle sporting luminaries. We've had Mina Kimes, Cliff Averill, and joining that party is Mr. Danny O'Neill. Welcome to Pedestrian Podcast, Danny. Well, I appreciate you having me. I certainly pale in comparison to, to Mina and to Cliff. So well, we didn't I, want to I, say that, but you know, you're <laughs> going to say it. It's definitely true. It's definitely <laughs> true. So how's, obviously you, you work in Seattle sports, the media, you were with the, the Seattle Times you were with before 710, wasn't it? Yeah. For, I've, I've kind of bounced around. I worked at the Seattle Times three different, at three different stops. Um, and from 2006, through 2013, I covered the Seahawks yes. um, full time. Prior to that, I'd been with the Seattle PI, and I covered I covered the Seahawks for one year at the PI, and before that was the was the Sonics. And then since 2013, I've worked at uh, 710 ESPN Seattle, which has been kind of this happy accident. Um, I never trained or prepared or expected uh, to talk for a living, um, so it's been very fun. Yeah, so well, obviously this is kind of 2020 encapsulated. This, we're on using a, a service which no one really seemed to be aware of before February, and you're doing your radio show four or five days a week from across the country in New York. How's how's the COVID world been for you and yours? It's well for for me. My wife and I we live we live here in Manhattan. Um, we moved in September, um, or I moved in September. She had gotten a job here in New York City. We don't have kids, um, so it's it's been we've been pretty fortunate. We live in a pretty comfortable apartment um, in, and we've both been been healthy. Um, it's it was strange to watch how how the pandemic hit here. We live on the same block as a as a hospital. So you saw different preparations that were taken and there were refrigerator trailer trucks sort of that you could see out our window um, that were, I mean, they were makeshift morgues and those, those were there for a couple months, but it's, I, I don't know what it's been like in England. I think that the, the sort of the tragedies happened behind closed doors. It's happened in hospitals and it's been with people that haven't been able to be with loved ones. I certainly feel very fortunate um, personally and it, very sad, too, to kind of watch this sort of unprecedented year as, as we all wrestle with all of these different things and trying to keep each other safe. Yeah, I mean, I think we spoke, it's New York kind of had, had it first, didn't it? So they kind of got prepared quicker than anyone else. So it's kind of, you, you were seeing it before anyone else in the country, especially whether your side of the Atlantic. Yeah, and now kind of watching to see, okay, what, what's going to happen? Because it is it, the 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 transmission rate has gone way down and infections have dropped and it hasn't disappeared, but we're not in that, that crisis where, I mean, really for a couple of weeks, the, the, the fear and the reality was that the healthcare system was becoming overloaded and it's certainly at a manageable level now, but we're kind of all watching. You don't, don't, don't quite know when 
or if another wave will happen and how that will impact us. Yeah, Adam? How's it gone in terms of, you know, on, on a work life? I mean, I, I'm a caterer, I'm an event caterer. We do 200 person functions on a regular basis. And all of a sudden, you know, that is, feels like a different life ago. And now we're doing takeaway boxes. And, you know, you have an incredibly social job. You know, I imagine you're very used to people into the studios, a lot of face-to-face work. How's that impacted kind of how you do your job? I mean, for me, it feels like I can't remember my old life. Uh, and this feels so normal now, which is almost, you don't want it to, you want this to feel like a different thing. But how's it feel for you guys in the media? I'm a pretty extreme extrovert. So that it's been a real challenge to, to not be around people. I miss the office. I miss, I miss being around people. Um, as far as the conversations and the content, I'm very fortunate to continue working, um, I, to be in the media and to be at a company that knock on wood, we haven't had layoffs. Um, but it's also strange to kind of feel like there were times that you were making up conversation about sports because sports wasn't happening. So you get this, and, and I went through different phases of that, of does it, we're doing something that kind of doesn't matter, but then feeling like, oh, actually it does matter because we're all overwhelmed with outlets to talk about sort of the severity of what's going on. And sports is kind of a tie, and why I've always been drawn to sports is it's a tie that lashes a community together. It's something that, that does bring people together. To, to not have that, and then to feel when sports do come back in at least a limited extent, or even if, when there was NFL news, to have something to actually talk about, you could actually feel the energy come back to the conversation. And that in some ways just kind of made you realize how much of the, the energy of, of, of contact and interaction, interaction and conversation that we're missing, it does, it does feel different. And it's hard to imagine what it was like before. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the first real sport, American sport, thing which happened during all this was the NFL draft which obviously went down pretty universally well praised from even Roger Goodell cops and praise which is obviously I know (laughs) then I mean that's like five months ago and we're still in the same situation now it's a question of what kind of season we're going to watch in six seven weeks well without getting too deep how do you think the league are handling it or have handled it thus far obviously teams are back back on fields and in camps and in buildings? Um, So far, so good. I do believe that the NFL was completely bailed out by the fact that their their calendar gave them the most time. Um, The results so far in Major League Baseball are not encouraging. There's 30 teams in Major League Baseball, and we've now had outbreaks among two of them. Um, the Miami Marlins had within the first week of play had had upward almost 20 people get sick and where they they've now not played for a full week. The St. Louis Cardinals are in the midst of an outbreak right now. I think 13 people at seven players and six staff members. That's not encouraging because I think baseball, you look at it, it's a socially dis it, it's it's a sport where it's possible to socially distance. You don't have that sort of immediate and and it's not like football where the, the idea that if you played a baseball game against an opponent who, who was, um, was contagious, who had con- contracted coronavirus, whether they'd tested positive for it or not, you could see how you go through a game and you might not be, be in, infected by that person. It seems like 
that would be, it's much more problematic and difficult to separate or determine who came into contact with sick people in a football game. So I don't know what it's going to be like. I've been interested to watch because it seems like Europe has been able to return. And I know that not all countries like France, their, their top soccer league didn't return, but most, most European soccer clubs have returned and it doesn't seem like there's been the rash of positive tests that we've experienced in the U S no, and also over here, we've just had a uh, the first international cricket series. We had three games. The West Indies cricket team, about 25 of them, flew from the Caribbean over here. They flew over when it was pretty much at the peak of it as well. So they're getting lauded of all parts just for coming over. So that's that, that's like the first like uh, like test of everything going well. The, the players have been in bubbles at the stadiums for mm-hmm. 10 days before the game as well. So it's it's everything's just kind of they're learning from kind of going through a, a different process, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, New Orleans, the saints that came out they're they're clustering their team at a hotel. Mm-hmm. So they, they've rented out the entire hotel. There's no extra guests. And I think it's 150 people, players and staff members that they have staying there. So it's not a bubble, but they're trying to, to insulate contact and prevent contact, which yeah. seems like that will have a better chance of working. Whereas in baseball, they're having the guys go home at night when they're at home. And it looks it, – so far, there's, there's some pretty alarming signs. I mean, the two teams have now had outbreaks that have gone through and spread within the, the clubhouses is concerning. Obviously, I think Thursday is the final deadline for the NFL opt-out. Uh, I feel like CJ Mosley is probably the highest profile player who obviously just doesn't like playing for the Jets at all because whether it's injury <laughs> or opt out, he just, he just wants none of it, you know, fair play to him. I think he's going to play his third game for them in 2060. Um, so good luck to the guy. Is it, you know, 48 hours when it's trade deadlines, when it's free agency, this is when, you know, S starts to hit the fan and stuff starts to happen. It, do you reckon there could be another raft? And at what point, I mean, I don't think an NFL are going to cancel the season, but what what's going to resonate? You know, if if what's the level of you know making waves that could happen in the next couple of days that could maybe alter the narrative slightly? If you had a high profile quarterback mm-hmm. opt out, um, or you saw a number of high ranking players decide, I'm not going to do this. Um, so far, I've heard I've heard from a couple of NFL people that they were surprised at the high number. And I actually kind of expected more. I thought we might get yeah. as high as 10%. Um, and, and right now, it looks like it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's averaging about between two and three per team. Um, we'll, we'll see. Um, I've always – it's hard because I used to do anonymous surveys for Sporting News. And one of the questions that they, that they would have would be sort of head injury questions. Are you concerned about the long-term impact of concussions? And that would be followed by a question about, have you ever hid symptoms of a concussion to continue playing? And I had, I don't think I ever had a player tell me that they weren't concerned about the long-term effect of concussions. And the vast majority also said that they hid symptoms of a concussion to continue playing. I think football players in general have made concessions about their long-term health to play the game. So I didn't really have a gauge to expect how many guys would choose to sort of take, take on the risk of playing and getting sick. Um, but it seems, 
it, it, it seems like some people have been very thoughtful about, I just don't want to do this right now. I'm not willing to do it. Starlo to Lele and Chance Wormack is the one Seahawk that, that had opted out. Um, it's, I certainly understand it. I, I can't stand the idea that people will react negatively towards someone who chooses to not put themselves at risk. Yes, yeah, I think Marquis Goodwin came out and explained his stance. It's kind of like you don't need to do that. You've you made you made your decision. There's clearly something you've thought hard about. I mean, for someone who's it's the only thing they've really ever done for their life. So for them to make the decision to not want to do that for the next six seven months, you kind of just say, okay. But the fact that it has to be explained is kind of a tallying of the current environment in some circles, isn't it? Yeah, and there's I can't wrap my head around this where people will accuse the player of being selfish <laughs> for prioritizing their own health. And the reason that they're upset is because that player isn't per- performing for their entertainment, which is <laughs> about the most selfish thing that I can imagine. Like it's this, yeah. but there is a mentality there that gets twisted. And look, I feel both fortunate and a little bit guilty, honestly, that I've been able to, for the most part, I, I, I can get groceries delivered to me. I can work from home. Like for the, for the day to day, it's clearly, it's impacted me, but not has it, has it made my life measurably worse? Like the biggest thing is, is that I haven't been able to, to be around people. And, and I feel fortunate for that. And if you have the comfort or the ability to, to not put yourself at risk and you choose to take advantage of that, I just, I don't get the idea of people begrudging them that. And one of the, one of the realities is that some of the players don't feel the same financial pinch that your average Joe does. And if they choose to keep themselves healthy, Hey, all the power to you. I mean, the NFL does a terrific job of almost in a Pravda esque way of managing to, you know, allow itself to be the, the swan floating perfectly across the water and underneath the legs are pedaling like mad to try and hide any negative coverage. You know, the concussion thing is an enormous thing, but they managed to kind of bury it really and let everyone get on with their Sundays and the kneeling. And, you know, I just want to watch my sport. I don't want politics. Do you think that, there, I mean, there must be a level of slight concern amongst the owners that if, God forbid, a player was to die ultimately from this and it becomes rife, like, it doesn't feel like there's a massively thick sheet of ice on top of the NFL's general PR campaign, keeping it as like America's thing. And that, that, that must be a concern because it doesn't feel like it, you know, it's the most stable of things keeping the whole thing afloat. I would agree with you. And I, th- I think that some of the things that you've seen the league do and the way that they responded to the players who released the video asking Goodell to say Black Lives Matter among other things, and the fact that Goodell responded and, and did it, I think speaks to, there, there are questions about the, how much of the player's interest does the league have? And is, is the commissioner just uh, sort of the stuffed shirt that's up there to take all of the flack so the owners don't get criticized? There, there are very real questions about both how the, how the game benefits and the, 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 the long-term costs that it takes from the players. And look, there's, there's a certain level of that people have been willing to accept the, the, the harm that football players in, are, have inflicted on them because it's our Sunday gladiator sport. And yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with you, Adam. Like the, the question of at what point would there be some sort of a, a fundamental change? Mm-hmm. 
I, I certainly, I, I've wondered for years what would happen if a player died on the field. Like that's not outside the realm of possibility. And what, what, what would happen? Miles Garrett was three inches away from killing someone. Yeah, and that dude got an extension this off season. Like it's yeah, th- those sort of things e- exactly. Like I don't know how people would react. I I don't I don't know how that would change um, the the public the popularity of the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with that video, I think as soon as people saw Patrick Mahomes' face pop up on it, you're like, oh, okay. This, this if any video is going to be the one which changes something, it, him being on the video. Super Bowl MVP about to be the what a billion dollar man or whatever it was his contract that was kind of the moment wasn't it where I think yeah if if, if anything's going to change this is the thing that's going to be the change isn't it wasn't it I thought so I but then I also wondered man like that the NFL has been how they handled the the questions about Kaepernick and what basically in which they just moved everything out of sight. Like the, the NFL succeeded in as as Trump targeted the players and then all of the players were really upset, they they were able to get people to stop watching. And some of that was by having the television networks not show the anthem anymore. Uh, uh, some of it was was moving and, and, and having the players who continued to protest or to, to sit during the anthem. Those players were in the locker room then. They didn't come out until afterward. Um, I thought it was, and I don't think Goodell had unanimous support in addressing it, but without a doubt, having Patrick Mahomes as sort of the the face of it, not only that, but I think everybody wondered when you're a quarterback, you get kind of close to being management. Like it's, it's not, you're not fully a rank and file player any, any, anymore because there is, there is a level of that and both with he and, and Russell Wilson. And that's not to say that those guys are necessarily not political or Aaron Rodgers and all of the different players that have been in there. Having Patrick Mahomes as part of that was, and did make an impact. Yeah. Firstly, you just did, you can tell you work in the media on zoom for a while. Cause the way you just muted your microphone, because I got a dog going nuts. nuts. I know we got, we got pizza coming. She and gets excited timed, for pizza. You, you timed it so perfectly to unmute with your microphone. You can tell you, yeah, it's not your first time doing one of these. And, and no, secondly, not the first time my dog barking either. I, yeah, I excited. And secondly, it's, it's funny. Cause I, you know, to bring it to a slightly serious perspective, I, remember Pete Carroll talking about the Tennessee game um, in Nashville when, you know, I think Trump had just, you know, said one yes. of his many outrageous things. And I don't blame Pete Carroll for this, but you know, the phrasing he used, he was almost, you know, it's not his job necessary to be so pastoral. These are professional guys. They're not college kids. But the way in which he was talking about that game, like how they didn't do a good job, he was kind of framing it in the sense that we lost because our players were distracted by, kind of some of the social context issues. And I wonder how, you know, contemporary that view might be now, how, how that would be looked at when players are much more outspoken. And I think a, a coach like Pete, who, you know, is clearly a tremendous human being and, and wonderful for his players, but, you know, his job is to win games ultimately. And you could tell there was a frustration about that, you know, if we didn't have to do all the posting and all the conversation, we could have had another special teams meeting that evening. That That's kind of how it felt felt to me. And I wonder if that, that may be a change a few, you know, a few years down the road after the players have been a bit more publicly outspoken. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because Pete, Pete really does 
empathize and believe in in the the message and the mission of social justice like it is something like his his heart is there and he does he, he does feel that i i think that his reaction after that tennessee game was the belief that his players had expended so much emotion mm-hmm. in in talking about what they were going to do before the game that that yeah that they didn't they didn't have as much it's an emotional team like Pete Carroll's teams are emotional and and I think that they they there was they were not flat but they had already expended a great deal of emotion that that weekend in the conversation with it I don't I don't know what it's going to be like going forward um I think Pete also honestly regrets how things went with Kaepernick mm-hmm. um I think I think if he had that to do over again he might look at signing Kaepernick to be a backup um when they when they first looked at him, um, I think a large part of the reason that they didn't is the spot that Russell was at at that point in his career, that they didn't want to bring in someone who would necessarily be seen as a competitor. And there was a little bit of tension between Russ and some of the guys on the defense, kind of namely Sherman. Um, but it's a good question. I, I Pete does not shy away from letting his players be themselves and express themselves, mm-hmm. and and how how that comes and how that happens now in a different reality will be interesting because I would say that Pete was the outlier five years ago and he's not necessarily now. I think more and more teams and coaches and people around the league do sort of accept isn't the right word, but believe that it's, it's a good thing for players to exercise their voices. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Well, obviously back then was, like I said, it's a bit of a pilot. Well, another aspect of this over the last few months, was the Russell Wilson presser on Zoom a few weeks ago? And I think I text Michael Sean Dugar, who calls the team for Athletic. I text him. I was like, I've never seen Russell Wilson so Russell, like not Russell Wilson kind of thing. It was, it was the most raw forty minutes. So that I mean, it, what's happened in the past few months? Not just with COVID. Obviously, he's 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 got a newborn, and obviously George Floyd and the the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movements and what he's it's it's more than likely changed his perspective and how he conducts himself as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I definitely think so. And look, there's still a reality of that it's different to be a black quarterback in the NFL. Like you you can talk about the success that black quarterbacks have had, but there is a different, there's a different evaluation scale that is used for a black quarterback. Um, I don't have any question or doubts about that. Just look at what happened to, Cam Newton this off season. I mean, that guy's still pretty young. He's not too long ago an elite franchise. He was the MVP of the league <laughs> in, in 2016. So I give, I, I give Russell and I think Russell is, is at, it's not wrestling with it. Cause he's always been a black quarterback, mm. but how, how do you speak for the things that you feel uh, strongly about when, when you might not, you might, that you've you've not you've not spoken about those issues publicly. It hasn't been part of your messaging, um, and and I think that I, I I would agree with you, Stu. Like hearing there was the, he he talked about a pain that he has never really talked about before, and it was very human and it was very vulnerable. And and that's one thing Russell has not ever been. 
And I think it's part of the reason why he's so successful. He doesn't talk about, he doesn't talk about being a short quarterback and not getting opportunities in that same way. It's kind of like somebody's overlooked me. And, and he taught, there was a heaviness to, to what he said. Um, and it, it was, it was different. He had, he'd never, he doesn't, he doesn't talk like that. That's not part of his, his, his approach to being a public figure. And I think in that way, he was letting us into the very private challenges and the toll that that, that has taken on him. Yeah. Adam? Yeah. I mean, do you think he ever might, he's never going to regret his career. He's been you know, a tremendous leader and ambassador, but if, if he carries on as you know, per that interview, as opposed to the, the robot that we've come to, you can't even love it. You, you have to tolerate it because there's, there's nothing to love. Um, you know, you just, just, it's just like a tin man talking. <laughs> um, do you think he might ever live to regret the fact that you know, he decided not to be a bit more kind of not emotional, maybe emotive at the podium and be a bit more human? Because really, like, that's what, as consumers, we love. We love that. Like, you don't need to be controversial, but you can be human. I don't think he'll regret it. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that a big part of Russell's approach is he talks about having a neutral mind and he works with a, with a mental coach, Trevor Moad. And a big part of Russell's approach is going back to center after every play, whether it's good or bad, getting back to a place where he's non-emotive in some senses. That it's not like, oh, I'm hot, man, I'm going to keep dealing. And it's not like, God, I've got to get out of this. It's getting back to this neutral place. And I believe that his public persona, the, the press conferences, are part of that practice. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of how, how he helps to do that. And I also think that long term, I think Russell's goals are, could relate to politics. He, def- he idolizes Derek Jeter. So does he want to be the face of a franchise? I think he sees that it's not a poker face because he's not, he's not concealing what he feels like he's actively trying to not feel it in some ways, right? Like it's, there's, and he sees that as part of the discipline. So I, I think that he sees a value in being able to take whatever emotional extreme he's feeling and sort of dialing back the intensity and getting back to a neutral space. Um, it's certainly possible, Adam, that he could get to a point in his career and he's like, I wish I'd cut it loose and had a little bit more fun or I had just been out there. But I, I don't know. He's, he's got an approach that – and I, I think that approach is part of what he would credit to his success. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, over the – the few months from the draft until recently, really, I'm, I mean, I know Adam was rather negative, and then we kind of were jolted into life with what the team did about ten days ago, and I did Jamal Adams, and I messaged Adam a couple of days ago, and I said, for me, this Seahawks off season and anything this Seahawks team does is pre Jamal and post Jamal. Is do you, is that something you agree with? Like the whole feel of everything is changed just by that one Adam Schefter tweet, and then. The Ian Rappaport one out on 15 seconds later. Three seconds yeah. later. Always three seconds later. I feel so sorry for the poor guy. Do you guys think they're, they're on the same text chain? Like that's, I've started to wonder, like, is it, some, is, is it a group text that goes out? Like, because it's clear that, like, that's not how information would flow, right? That yeah. one guy gets it just seconds before the other one does. Yeah. So I don't know if it's Schefter's thumbs. Like, I, 
I would be fascinated to know like actually how, or is it that Schefter gets the first copy tweet and then that same source <laughs> like copies the text and sends it to Rappaport if there's like an actual pecking order in it? Yeah, it's maybe Maybe Schefter is the one giving Rappaport the news <laughs> and he's tweeting it out at the same time as he's texting Rappaport who then, you know, the, yeah, the damage is done by that stage. <laughs> It's such a funny economy. Like it's that, that part of it. Oh, it cracks me up. Um, the, the, I do think that I will, I, I will see this season differently as soon as they made the move for Jamal. And it's almost, it's part how good Jamal is, but it's also that it's the first time that in John Schneider and Pete Carroll's tenure that they've made a move where I'm like, this better work. Like, like, and they've made aggressive moves before, but they've always had pro bowlers coming out their ears when they've done it. Like when they traded for Percy Harvin and paid him, you had Russell Wilson was going into his second year and you kind of knew that you had your quarterback and let's fire it up and let's go with, with, with Jimmy Graham, they were coming off of back-to-back Super Bowl appearances. This is a bit of a different spot because I see it that they, they've kind of been at the same point for about five years where good enough to get into the playoffs, maybe even win a playoff game, but really, really not contending for home field advantage, like not really mm-hmm. for a first, a first week by, and, and then getting just, just whooped on the road in, in the divisional round. And in that time, they've gone from being sort of a team that was riding the nucleus that had taken them to the two Super Bowls to a team that had turned over their roster and I don't know if the group that they have, it, the question of whether they have the talent to get back over the hump and become one of the favorites in the NFC, I, I don't know. But certainly the move for Jamal Adams is the kind of thing. You only do that if you think he puts you over the top. But also, compared to Harvin and Jimmy Graham, the whole feel around Jamal is completely different. Obviously, Harvin was kind of coming where with a little bit of baggage. Jimmy Graham was still pissed pissed that the Saints didn't pay him as a receiver or tag him as a receiver but Jamal I mean his press conference last week was unbelievable he, he, he legitimately seems as happy as a person can be to go in the opposite way to where you went last September Danny he's gone over from New Jersey over to Seattle he, he, I don't think I've ever seen anyone so universal like there was every everything was positive and looking forward and not looking back it was it was impressive but it's, it was different to the other two big time moves they made isn't wasn't it that- yes yes it's clearly like he got what he wanted and he's in a spot that he feels better about and he knows he's going to get paid if if not if not this year then and it probably won't be this year it'll be next year i think the question comes down is can a safety be worth that like they, they paid we've seen three trades right where players like elite caliber players have been moved for two first round picks khalil mack Laramie Tunsil, Jalen Ramsey, and now Jamal Adams. The difference is Adams plays safety, which would be the least valuable of, of all of those positions, but safeties have, have excelled under Pete Carroll. And so I, it makes it fascinating. And there's part of me that likes, if you ask me, do I think it's worth it? No, I, 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 don't, I don't think two first round picks for a safety. I, I, I think it's not... It's not a deal that I would make. I wouldn't do that for the right to pay, make him the highest paid safety in the league. On the flip side, now that John Schneider's done it, I feel like the kid whose dad just tricked him into getting on the roller coaster where I'm like, 
okay, let's do it. This is going to be a blast. <laughs> like I'm, a, I'm really excited to see how it comes out because look, if, if, if he is that guy and that defense gets back or even he doesn't need to make them great. He just needs, needs to make them average. Yeah. Also with Khalil and um, Jalen, the J- Jamal's coming all with that, all that trade cost, but also he's coming to a team who has a quarterback. Yes. 100%. Huge, sense. huge difference. Yes. Yeah. The most solid quarterback situation out of all of those. Yeah. Tunsil, I, Deshaun Watson, yeah. it's not like he's close, but he's a franchise quarterback and Tunsil's the left tackle. And Tunsil's probably the worst football player out of the four of those guys. Mm-hmm. Like, even though he plays an important position, he's probably, he, he's, is he a pro bowler? Like, eh. Um, whereas Jamal's clearly, I mean, Jamal's one of the two or three best safeties in the league. Yeah. So, I'm really pleased that this is how the conversation was phrased because exactly the point I kind of wanted to make. So social media is as reductive a place as you can possibly find. And Twitter is the most reductive of a reductive society. And the let Russ cook crowd are one that I don't necessarily disagree with, but obviously they minimalize kind of the point. Now in the trades that the Seals have made in the past, Jimmy Graham, Percy Harvin, I'd even say Sheldon Richardson, Jadavian Clowney all have, at the time, when they've signed, we've thought, oh my goodness, this guy is going to be so good at doing that for, this, for the team. And invariably, they've not been allowed to cook without wanting to use that word. I mean, Sheldon Richardson was coming in as like a, you know, just let him free and do what he wants. Same with Clowney. Jimmy Graham was asked to block so many times for the team for absolutely no reason. That's not what he does. Let him do what he does. And when you say Jamal Adams has to work, I don't think it's going to work if he's not allowed to be Jamal Adams. But that would take an enormous shift from Pete Carroll kind of letting a guy, especially in his main position, you know, in the secondary to kind of do what he wants to do. How likely is it that Pete kind of lets him do that and and doesn't constrain him? Because I don't see a safety in Seattle getting six and a half sacks, but to be worth two first round picks, you probably need to get close to that. He needs to either pressure the quarterback or he needs to get interceptions. He needs to force turnovers. Um, I'm more optimistic about it with Jamal Adams because he is a member of the secondary and because we've seen Pete do it. We, we've seen Pete use Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor. Bill Barnwell had uh, a heat map where, where Jamal Adams lined up last season and he compared it to where Cam Chancellor lined up in 2016. And they weren't identical, but there were enough similarities where you saw where they were. Jamal was a little more heavy on on one side of the line where Cam was on both sides of the line. But they, there, were, there were enough similarities that I looked at it and I was like, okay, you can see that, that if that's the template for how they're going to use him. And I don't – he's not as big. Adams isn't as big as Chancellor was. But that, that kind of question – and Pete, Pete did that with Earl. Like he played to Earl's strengths. They played a lot of single high because of Earl's range. And Pete, while his – his patience for freelancing or, or reacting to what they see isn't endless. Like he does give his DBs latitude. Um, I'm more optimistic about that. I, I completely agree with you. I thought Jimmy Graham, I, I don't think Jimmy, the trade for Jimmy Graham was nearly as bad as most people do. He's we, a really productive player. Get agreement with us. We both love Jimmy Graham. Yeah. And, but the idea that you're going to have him block, like there were times where I was like, okay, why did you do that? Like, why, why did you trade for him? if you're going to have your sports car tow a boat, because you can get a guy to tow the boat and it's not nearly as hard as, as finding a guy that's a, a receiver like Jimmy Graham. Um, I, I'm more optimistic about this working. Cause I do think that Pete has gone away from 
he, he's really good friends with Monty Kiffin. And I mean, they're, they're, they go back to like the beginning of Pete's college mm-hmm. as, as an assistant coach. And Monty's like the, the dean of the cover two, like the Tampa two defense. Pete doesn't, Pete's more flexible with, with, with the format of what he does. And it's kind of, he's not devoted to his scheme as much as he is devoted to having a relatively simple approach that frees his players up to play fast and aggressive. Yeah. Um, you've, you've talked to Pete, his relationship he has with his players. I think I've heard a few, a few different examples of how he does that, but obviously you've been in the media before his entire time in, uh, in Seattle. Before we go through quickly all those times, what was that? We talked to Jolt with Jamal. What was that Jolt like from Jim Mora to Pete Carroll? 11, 12 years ago. I mean, you could not really get to people with different outlooks on life, really, could you? No, it, it was very different. Jim was, and I, 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 I always feel like I need to preface it. Where <laughs> I, li- I like Jim. And I think Jim is, Jim is very honest. And that's, as a reporter, I mean, that's the thing that you, you ask for and would want the most. Um, I think he was put in a very tough spot where he came in as the handpicked option that the GM wanted in place of Holmgren. And he stepped into a situation in which the GM was in Tim Ruskell was really at the sort of end of his rope in a make or break year. I think it was really hard. Um, Watching Pete come in and how he sort of reset everything. It was really healthy for the organization to be able to get back to having a, a GM and a coach that were kind of on the same path. They, they hadn't had that since Holmgren first came when Holmgren came as the coach and the GM. And then after the 2002 season where Holmgren was still the coach, but he wasn't the GM anymore. And he was kind of, he didn't really like the fact that he wasn't the GM anymore. And then they go to the Super Bowl in 2005 with the new GM and that kind of suddenly fairly quickly gets, gets out of line. I, I thought it was really healthy. And Jim, Jim is someone who he, he will push and push and push on players. And Pete, Pete is not someone, he believes that there's a limit when you coach negatively, when you coach through, through anger or through fear, that there's a limit to what that player will end up doing for you. That they'll basically play hard enough to not get fired. And, and Pete believes that if you get a guy to, to believe that you believe in him, that you will get more from him that way. And, and I think that you see the evidence of that. Pete's been really good and at his best coaching guys that in other situations would be uncoachable or difficult. And he gets a lot out of them. It also makes it so you get a little bit more turbulence because when you empower players like that and get them to believe in themselves, it's a little harder to tell them like, hey, chill out and you need to take a back seat right now. Um, but the, the biggest thing was is you had a, a, a culture reset where everybody was on the same page again. And that hadn't been the case for about eight years with Seattle. Uh, did you see anything change after um, in Pete's maybe not demeanor, but how he maybe approached players after Malcolm Butler? No, no. It's interesting. I I do think that they dealt with, and it's interesting to go back to that that interception because one of the guys that I remember, my, Michael Bennett, in the locker room after that game, I heard from several people made a very passionate plea that the 
the players needed to stick together and that they needed to stand up for the coaches because the coaches were going to take a lot of crap. That, and there was, there was this very passionate plea that part of like us being together and being part of a team means we stay together and we stand up together. So I don't think he had a situation where everybody was angry at him, but it stewed in the background for a number of years. And we, yeah. we saw flashes of it, right, with, with Sherman on that Thursday night game against the Rams when he was mad about the pass being thrown down there. And there's no doubt that that hung in the background. But I, I, think, I think Pete prides himself on staying, of being able to not have that incident sort of make him question himself. The, the one question I do have is whether they changed the type of the profile of players that they went after. Did they start getting guys who were a little less tumultuous? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, right? Like there's, and, and I don't know if that's just sort of the nature of, they got a different group of guys that they didn't set out to like, Oh, let's go get some guys who are a handful. But I mean, you had Doug Baldwin, Richard Sherman, Michael Bennett, Marshawn Lynch. Like you had a pretty high number of guys, Percy Harvin. I, you had a high number of guys who were, who were very willful players and combustible. And that has not been the case. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily been, to, to the benefit of the team, there's part of me that's wondered, like maybe, maybe part of what Pete's magic was is that he's able to tolerate a lot more sort of turbulence than most people are. And you get the benefit of that too. For me, the last few years kind of read on that sense that it's a bit like Pete wants to have his cake and eat it. You know, it's all well and good having the outspoken guys that will push you and tell the courts about that he sucks when you get into Super Bowls. But then when it takes a slight downturn, it's like, oh, I, I can't possibly have this around. You know, this isn't this, you know, we have to get rid of the whole thing. And right now, I actually think, and, you know, if we're going to do AD and BC, you know, with the pre and post Jamal Adams signing, Jamal might be, you know, the the way back to that to get a guy you know it's it's quite a nice group of guys at the moment there yes, doesn't to be an, an enormous amount of kind of challenging going on you know tyler lockett is not doug baldwin when it comes to his outspoken nature bobby and kj are known for their kind of quiet leadership and i kind of miss it i have to say i, I think Stuart's the same I, I miss the guys because they felt like a real representation of just being badasses on, oh, on the field and, and that's why we won I, I absolutely loved Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it was, was watching and listening to Richard Sherman for 15, 20 minutes. Just yeah. like it was, at, it was pretty close to as like mundane as they probably are for the players to get through. It was box office more often than not. And obviously him and Doug started having fun with it. What was it like being in that room and especially with Richard Sherman, especially who was a fifth round cornerback kind of forgotten on draft weekend to, one of the faces of the franchise, how, how, his emergence, what was that like to watch from your vantage? It was awesome. <laughs> Rich, Richard is one of the more unique, he's got a unique perspective on sort of both how he's gotten to where he is, what keeps him sharp. Um, he's fascinating. And like I said, like what's the thing that a reporter would like most? It's someone who's honest. And Richard was willing to tell you what he thought or to share his perspective in ways that were, I remember the first time that, that, that I really saw it was they had Chris Heron, who is a, he's an American basketball player. He, he played a little bit in the NBA, but he's, he's most known for, he was a really prominent new England prep 
recruit who ended up having a significant number of drug problems. And he's kind of, he's, he's gotten sober and he's remade himself as kind of a, a, a motivational speaker and someone who talks about what he went through. And they, they brought him in. And I remember talking to, to Richard about it afterward, because I've always been kind of fascinated in Heron. Um, he'd gone to Fresno State, and I, I'd followed his career, and I've listened, watched a couple of documentaries. So I was fascinated to hear from what the players thought about it. And Richard was annoyed, where he was kind of like, you got this guy up there telling me that I could fall victim to drugs at any point in time. He's like, don't question my mental toughness. Like, I walked out of the across people who were passed out every morning to go to high school. Like if I wanted the easy way out, I would have took it. Like, don't, don't sit there and tell me that that can happen to me. And there was, it wasn't, it, it was unexpected, but it was also like where I'm like, I'm getting an insight into this guy's personality and why he's been able to achieve at this level. Richard is, Richard is the most interesting athlete that I've ever covered. Um, and I say that he's got me blocked on Twitter right now and, and has because he didn't, he didn't like some of the opinions I had about what happened after the, the confrontation with the Rams. And he's had whatever you want to say, a testy. I don't think it's cool. Some of the stuff that he's, he's, he's thought that he's felt about Russell and some of that things that have happened. But I also, I really respect both who Richard is and have, and his willingness to kind of let us see inside of that. And, I think Richard's always got a point. Like I don't, I, I, I don't think he's always right, and I think he'll always argue to the end, convinced that he's right. But he he always has a point. Um, and and I would say that that goes for all the guys. Marshawn, who didn't like to be interviewed, certainly after the first couple of years, fascinating person as well. And I, a guy opting out of the NFL's publicity machinery, I, I had a ton of respect for that. Like he just didn't want to do it. It was like, I've, I've been through this. I see what I get out of it. I see what the NFL gets out of it. And I also see like how it can end up kind of biting me in the butt because I get a lot of guys who don't really understand me then passing judgment on me and who I am. I just rather not do it. A, a ton of respect. It, it's a, it, it was, it's a fascinating team. And I have incredibly fond memories of, of covering that group of guys. Yeah, I mean, I think any anytime Sherman does anything, I think Adam, I'm always on Twitter or in our messages, just using the crown emoji because for me, he will always be the king. He's just the king. Like he's quite my. I don't think there'll be anyone who is my favorite player as much as I just. Even though he's put, even the team he plays for, we're supposed to dislike watching him do well for. It was like, I, like yeah, he's the the king basically. I think Adam. Yeah, I think I think him and Baldwin. I mean, I think I'm a year older than both of them, but I would very happily call to it like kind of like hero status. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, find them truly inspirational figures. You know, I mean, neither Stuart and I can in any way relate <laughs> remotely to their their upbringing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not anything like what what we've had. Um, and to watch people come here with that that kind of insight and thought, and be willing to you know be so independent with their thought. And I, I actually think it's a real shame that that Doug Baldwin isn't sharing as much as, as, as maybe he otherwise could have done. I fully respect the fact that you know, he, he's looking to get rid of that tag as a, as a football player, but I think the world is a, will be a weaker place if we don't hear from Doug Baldwin anymore. Yeah. I definitely think we'll hear from Doug more in the future. He's, he's got a lot of things to say, and I, I would agree. I'm older than both of those dudes. I, I love hearing their perspective, and I think I'm a better person, and it's challenged me in a lot of ways um, to, to, to have covered them. 
Uh, another thing on relationships, and he's certainly not a player who, as you blocked on Twitter, is I think he's the only Seahawk player who follows me last time I checked. Um, he's come back this season. Uh, Bruce Irvin and McDonald. Ah! <laughs> I love Bruce. <laughs> uh, so how did all the, well, how did the McDonald's thing? And I mean, Bruce is one of those who's just like, he's, he's as outgoing as outgoing. He's always got that big toothy grin on his face as well. I mean, he must be, obviously he doesn't get the stage time that the Shermans and Bennett's and Thomas got back in the day, but he's someone who's equally had an incredibly interesting journey to where he was in 2012 and now where he is again in 2020. It's amazing. I, I sit there. His career makes me smile. Like, I'm so happy that that guy, because you remember when they drafted him, the, the kind of thought was like, how, how, how is this going to work? Like, this is a person that he basically didn't play high school football because he was never eligible. He didn't graduate from high school. He was homeless for a time. He was selling drugs. And then he ended up kind of getting things together and going to a junior college and then going to West Virginia. And then he gets arrested after the combine and everybody's like, what do you, you, can you trust this knucklehead? And he's, he's had a career in which he's done remarkably well. Um, I'm not sure how Bruce and I were talking and I was, I was asking him something and maybe he, I think it might've started because he said something about that. You guys always ask stuff for us, but you never ask stuff from us, but you never bring anything. And I, and I was like, you know, that's fair. Like, how about I bring you lunch tomorrow? And, and I, I think that that's how it started. And there's really just, I love the fact that Bruce is just himself. And the things that would crack me up about him would be like, he would, he would eat and burp while I was talking to him um, after it for different interviews. I think we did something called loose swerving with Bruce Irvin. He was always funny. Like just some of his pronunciations crack me up. Um, and and he's just, he's just himself. Uh, he's, they were talking about who the best athlete in the locker room was. And it was coming, Deshaun Shedd was a decathlete. Like, so he's like a, a decathlete at Portland State. So, and people were saying it's him. And Bruce just looks over there and he goes, man, he goes, I'm 20 pounds heavier than you and I can do everything better than you. <laughs> it was like, he like, might be right. Cause I, I, I was convinced if you had a foot race, if you had a foot race, I think he and Earl would have been the two guys that, that I would have said that those, those guys might be the fastest off of those teams. And then he would just like, you ask him why Hauschka was so good at ping pong. Cause he's white. Like he was just, he was just funny. He's just got always something after Percy Harvin. And I heard this, I didn't, I didn't see it obviously because it was on the team plane. Percy Harvin got traded. Like they were going to St. Louis. He got pulled off the bus. They get to the team plane and the players are walking on. And how it works is the, the coaches are up front and then the players kind of walk on and get through the back. And Bruce, Bruce just starts saying, so everybody's kind of shook of like, Percy's not going to be with us. What the hell just happened? They're realizing he got traded. And Bruce starts selling. He's like, Norton, nowhere cold. I'm just telling you, nowhere cold. Whenever <laughs> you guys trade me and you ship me out of here, don't send me to Buffalo. Don't send me to New York. <laughs> nowhere cold. And everybody starts cracking up. And that's, that's kind of just Bruce. Like he just, he lets it all hang out there. And it, it does. It makes me so happy. He's got a couple of adorable kids. Um, and he's just, he just couldn't be a nicer guy. It, it was funny because uh, Marshall Lynch did that interview with Michael Silver uh, on the NFL, you know, dot com last week. And it was amazing to me because 
at the end, he said, you know, we had guys like, and when you hear a player from that era say that, well, you think they're going to say, Earl Thomas, Bobby Wagner, Richard Sherman, Doug Baldwin. And I think he said, Brandon Browner, Byron Maxwell, Brandon Meebane, and Red Bryant. And it kind of got me thinking like, that just, all 53 of them must have just been just a riot. And, you know, I hope there's all the 30 for 30s and whatever that can be done about that team, because they seem like a remarkable group. And as a journalist, you know, it must feel just, you know, so, I don't want to say fortunate because you worked your ass off to get to where you were, but it must be just so great to have had, you know, thank goodness I had, you know, that period of six, seven years where I got to cover those guys. And it must just feel incredibly just validating for your whole career. It was really fun. Um, the, the reality is, especially when working for a newspaper, by the time you get to an end of a season, like you're kind of worn out. And there's this weird thing that'll happen where you root for them to do well in the sense that the, the team's success provides more interest, which means people are more hungry for things that you're writing. But there's also this level of as, thing, as that happens, you're providing more and more and it starts, I don't expect anybody to feel like, oh my, but you're kind of worn out and you're like, God, this is, this is a lot. And at the end of that 2012 season, when they lost that game in Atlanta, it was the first time that I could physically feel like I was bummed. Like I was like, ah, oh, I'm not going to get to cover this group next week. And it was, it wasn't the sort of fans emotion of my team lost. It was like, this is so much fun. And that group is so fun to watch. And it, it set the table for that next season. Mm-hmm. I do feel incredibly fortunate to not just cover a team that was that good, but to cover a team that, that was that interesting and that different and that sort of unapologetically themselves. Um, and it's something that, that I do. I, I feel incredibly lucky um, just in general for my career to be able to do this for a living, but I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to, to be that close and have that proximity and that window into a truly remarkable collection of dudes. Like there's just, there's, there's nothing that will be like that, I don't think. I, I don't expect to ever cover that again. I covered the Seahawks when they went to the Super Bowl in 2005. And it was really cool, and people were excited, and it's a, there's a devoted fan base to the Seahawks. But when they went to the Super Bowl in 2013, it was different. And it was different because the way that team resonated it, it across the league, but especially in the city. Um, my wife was working. She's, she's also a journalist. Um, but she was working at the Seattle Times. She was part of the editorial board, their op-ed section. And, and that year they went to the Super Bowl. She wrote, uh, it was an op-ed about how she was channeling the spirit of Sherman and that uh, Seattle was too laid back and they needed more braggadocious. They needed more swagger. So she was calling out there was the tunnel being built in there. Like, I'm calling you out, Big Bertha. Like, you're a, you're a mediocre drill getting broke down in the tunnel. And, and that that way that they, they resonated, it's, it's, it's very unique and really, really cool. It resonated around the world because I flew out to Seattle to be there for the Super Bowl. I booked, awesome. I booked flights the previous October thinking this team's going to be there. And I promised myself that one day I'll get to thank Sherman, Rich Sherman, public, like, you know, properly face to face because he saved my whole trip. It was 4 a.m. He said my whole trip. It was 4 a.m. in the morning when he made the trip. I was running around my house doing the silent scream you do when you try not to wake anyone up. And, you know, it, it, it was intoxicating. And 
it doesn't feel like it's quite there yet. And I guess you always hope that it does. But what Stuart and I said, you know, we started the podcast, I think, three or four years ago, is that if it does get to the point of being there, you have to enjoy it. Because yes. unfortunately, it goes so much quicker than it comes. And I wish I'd enjoyed it a little bit more than I did. And I loved it. Yeah. yeah. But like, over this last few minutes, just to fill time down, we've done a rewatch of, I think we did seven games from that season. And it was just, especially watching Marshall Lynch, it was incredible. It was so much fun to just watch him run and just see that it was, it was like, it was a different, everything was at a different speed to what we've seen in the last couple of years. And then you just like, Walter Thurman was making plays, Byron Maxwell was making plays, Red Bryant, Brandon Meebane, Clinton McDonald. And it was just like, I forgot, you kind of forget like seven years down the line that it was a ridiculous, ridiculous group. And it was, it was, I'm, I was enjoyed every just reliving it. So it, it, it must be, it must have been really cool to live through. It's, you talk about it in the, the moments and the images and the memories uh, of that season. Cause you talked about, it. I think my, it's one of my favorite plays uh, of Marshawn Lynch's. And I think it's the week two, a game against San Francisco that year. Cause they played the opening week at Carolina, which was a pretty closely played game. And I think there was a fumble late that, that the Seahawks forced to clinch it. I think Jermaine, Jermaine Kerr scored, scored the touchdown. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the next week, it's kind of this low scoring. And I think there was like a lightning delay in the first half. Marshawn yeah, really Lynch. Not appreciated at a 125 game <laughs> kickoff, by the way. We don't like those. We don't like over time and prime time. We don't like lightning delays in prime time. So make sure that never happens again, please. Yeah, six, six. Uh, yeah. And Sherman, Sherman gets that. Or I'm sorry, Marshawn Lynch scores that touchdown. And he just, he kind of just barely steps across the end zone. And then he just drops the football like this mic drop. And it was just so defiant. And I was like, that might be the coolest celebration I've ever seen. <laughs> like to just, it was like disdainful the way he looked <laughs> over at the Niners. It was awesome. Oh, it was so cool. Um, yeah, obviously the one, what, what the one thing obviously during this uh, COVID time that obviously basically brought you into this soon call was your article you wrote a few weeks ago on your enjoyment and was it is it bewilderment that the, of the whole relegation promotion no no i love relegation yeah. i didn't i so i've always been aware of it and i'm i like soccer i like making fun of soccer more in the united <laughs> states which makes it a little like it's so i'm kind of phony in that way i didn't realize how avidly people follow relegation mm. like I, that so that relegation almost becomes as interesting as, or, or it's not as interesting as who qualifies for Champions League, but it's it's cl- like the way you follow it, and like this yeah. past weekend following it to see who was going to get sent down, because yeah. uh, what one of the th- one of the three teams was going to survive Aston Villa, Watford, yeah. and and Bournemouth. Um, I love I love relegation. So about twenty minutes before. We jumped on with you. Um, Fulham got promoted, and it's oh, they did. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's it's dubbed as the richest game in. Is it sport or it's definitely football? It's worth like 150 million pounds. Yeah. So so Brentford, who were the team the team that they beat, they've been in existence since 1899. But had they won the game tonight, they would have received more turnover in one evening than in the previous 121 years combined. <laughs> So that's how important promotion and relegation are. And it is something funny because you do hate to see these teams tanking to get the first pick. And the worst is even having, you know, I can't imagine, I 
God forbid this ever happens to the Seahawks that we have to that we're sat here in August thinking it's very important that we don't win many games this year so that our <laughs> next year's drop it. I can't think of anything worse. And so, yeah, I mean, re- relegation is something that you know we've grown up with. Unfortunately, Stuart's lived through it a couple of times with his team. Um, I'm fortunate that. We- We've never, but I support Tottenham. have never not been relegated in my life. But Stuart sports Coventry, who are thankfully on, on the rise again, but they've been relegated probably three or four times in his life from different different divisions, and it sucks. Yeah, I so I've been trying to trying to follow it. So Leeds Leeds is coming up right, and they've yeah. been they've been down for like fifteen years, and I was interested in them. Yeah. But then I found out the Forty ers own part of them. Yeah, I can't re- I mean, you can't root for a team that uh, the Forty ers own part of. You wouldn't want to root for Leeds anyway, to be quite honest with you. Oh really? They're known as dirty leads for a reason. They're kind of the Raiders, <laughs> the Raiders of football, yeah. I would say. <laughs> That's funny because I read that. What's the book? The Damn United by David yeah. Pierce, mm-hmm. which is about yeah. is it Cluey? How do you guys? Clough. Is it Clough? Clough. Cluffy? Oh, Brian Clough. It's, uh, it's, it's a film as well with um, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Michael Sheen. Ma- Michael Sheen. Who, the uh, non-Jed Bartlett Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is really good. But um, yeah, so. M- m- I've been following my team for since 1993 and they've relegated three times. And before I was born, my dad never saw us got relegated and they've been relegated three times since I was, he started taking me. So it's, 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 it's not like the, the things that Adam moans about watching his team are universes apart from what I moan about watching my team. It's fascinating to me. So how does it, how does a team like Leeds, which seems like it was very well funded, and but they went into too much debt, and then so because there's a whole phrase, right? Pulling Leeds, like where you get overextended, and then you like basically just start plummeting. Like that's yeah. fascinating to me. Whenever like any team looks to spend some money, they're like, "We well, don't want to do a Leeds." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Leeds were effectively paying like Jermaine Fedi. $17 million a year. That's what they were doing. And they were doing it for 20, 20 or 23 players in a time where there was a lot less financial muscle in the game. I mean, now, unfortunately, teams are owned by countries and actually yeah. the sport is a bit stupid as a result. But when it was a guy that owns a team and they were spending you know, 50,000 pounds a week, which is a lot of money now, but it was an awful lot of money in 2001 on players, yeah, like, yeah, Joey Hunt. Um, you're not going to want to do that. And so, yeah, doing a Leeds and they ne- they've only just recovered from it now. But apparently you're, you're looking for a team. I am. Yeah. So I went and saw it. I've, I've seen two Premier League matches, um, Queen's Park Rangers and West Ham. And then the other one, I only saw part of it. It was West Ham. It was West Ham as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I need a team. And, and I've tried this before and it's always hard because – so many American writers root for Arsenal and I don't understand like, yeah, Arsenal, <laughs> Arsenal, why is Arsenal? Is it because of the, the Nick Hornby book that all these American writers like have decided to be Arsenal fans? Quite possibly. Or maybe just kind of mental illness. That would be it. <laughs> but I've, like, I think I, I tweeted you, Danny. I think I've, a lot of Seattle media appear to be Spurs fans, which is quite, they do. A couple of people at my station are Spurs fans. Um, yes, that's correct. Yeah, I don't know if it's Yedlin, Yedlin related, but yeah. Lydia Cruz and Stacey Rost are both, are both Spurs fans. So they, I think I was in a tweet chain with them 
from Amsterdam when Spurs got to the Champions League final because uh, I'm friendly with Kevin Shockey from the other station uh, uh-huh. and, and Jackson from the other station who are also Spurs fans and uh, we had a little, a little chat and Mina Kimes and her brother who I'm very friendly with uh, are all Spurs fans. Now, for the good of your life going forward, I can strongly advise you against joining us, but uh-huh. you'd be so welcome. We'd love to have you. But honestly, if you want to smile for another day in your life, choose anyone else because there's no joy over here sadly it's you can't because there's certain teams you can't root for right like chelsea is too well funded because they've got like the russian oil oligarch yeah. yeah manchester united is completely out because they're the yankees yeah um liverpool is now completely played out because that would be a bandwagon selection mm-hmm. and, 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 and boston and, as well and they're red Sox as well oh no kid uh, yeah no <laughs> and then the Glaciers, it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that own the own Man United. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Man City's Abu Dhabi. Yes. And yeah. Arsenal are owned by Stan Kroenke of the LA Rams. Yes. So it's you know, just another reason just to avoid that hellhole. Um, look, we'd love to have you. Uh, okay. And have you, have you been, so you've been over to the UK a couple of times? A couple of times. Um, yes, but I look to go forward. I, I'm hoping to go more frequently now. I love yeah. London. There's a, there's a Spurs ticket waiting for you at any game you want to come to because we've got plenty <laughs> of season tickets and you're welcome to come and suffer in silence or, or in, in loudness with us anytime you want. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. <laughs> uh, should we have a quick spin, Adam? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so Danny, we do a thing every week. Where it's called Get in the Bin, where it's just someone who's really, really irritated us or annoyed us or been a bit dumb and stupid. I'm, after reading what you wrote a couple of days ago, I'm pretty certain who I know you're going to put in. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. your bin but like so for me for for us well this started when Hugh Jackson was at was he at Cleveland when we started doing mm-hmm. it? yeah that's when it started he, 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 he's got residency Colin Cowherd's got residency Cowherd has a timeshare um, for to be fair not even NFL opinions just general opinions um so yeah so we just Adam do you want to kick us off with yeah, I'm going to actually do a controversial anti-bin. So normally Skip Bayless would be well in the bin for his just outlandish ridiculousness. And him doing leading off a show with talking about why LeBron James's beard is going grey in, <laughs> in a time of a global pandemic, that would normally be as bin-worthy as ever. But I have to say, in the midst of a global pandemic, with five months of no sport, how refreshing to have that idiot back on TV being just giving us a shred of normalcy, slagging off LeBron James having a few grey tufts in his beard. Um, so yes, yeah, Skip Bayless is, is, not go, is not going in the bin in me placing him in the bin, if that makes sense, Stu. Just, just by just be, his mere reappearance and presence. Just being there. You know, it's kind of, exactly. you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a home comfort having Skip back talking shite on TV. <laughs> I mean, I, I think mine would be who... Danny, you wrote about a couple of days ago, so I'll leave the floor for you. Oh, Boomer Esiason. Yeah, Boomer yeah. made me mad. Um, yeah, he talked about Jamal Adams, and it's a, it's a well-tread sort of uh, habit. When a player leaves one, one team for another, the team that he's departing from then takes an entire four or five days to completely slag that player, right? <laughs> like it's a way to pay – We've seen it to some extent with Sherman when he's left and everybody kind of like, okay, it's time to get your shots in on the way out. So there's part of that that's normal for Jamal Adams. Boomer Esiason, and, and maybe it, he, he said, I don't know if Jamal Adams is bipolar, and then de- described that whatever he did was a complete disgrace. <laughs> and there's 
it's a special kind of like lameness to talk about someone's mental health. And the fact that Boomer Esiason is not a psychologist, yet this is the third time in five years he's wondered if such and such player is bipolar. And then I was like, look, I don't think it's cool to do that to begin with, but what exactly did Jamal Adams do that you would define as potentially fitting your sort of armchair diagnosis that he decided he wanted to be traded from a demonstrably bad team that wasn't giving him the raise he wanted and he sought to get traded. Like that actually seems extremely rational. And when he wasn't getting what he wanted, he then proceeded to criticize his boss in public, which is, should be everyone's dream. Like if you could, if you could go on like, Hey, I'd like to tell you that I think the guy in charge of this team, yeah, the coach with the bug eyes, Adam Gase. I, yeah, I think he's terrible. I don't think he should be the coach. And I don't think we're going anywhere with him. If you could go ahead and print that, yeah, I'd appreciate it. No, you're right. They probably won't like it. But if they trade me, then I'm getting what I want. Thank you. Click. And then get traded? Like, it's the ultimate power play. Instead, Boomer's like, oh, I think that he might be bipolar. So, yeah, Boomer gets thrown in the bin. I love it. That's just to think, if he just put a full stop after, I don't know if Jamal Adams is bipolar, full stop, he could have saved all of the bin. He wouldn't exactly. have been in. He could exactly. have said but most he would have stayed out of the bin. And yeah, I'm sure he's going to be deeply offended to, uh, um, people are going to tell him. There's no, yeah. Yeah, we have three <laughs> listeners. We have three <laughs> listeners. He's going to find out. Yeah, the, the only one that could go in my bin is my local city council for a multitude of reasons. But never mind, that's a different podcast and a different subject, Adam. <laughs> uh, one more thing on relationships. And obviously on your uh, breakfast radio show, Danny, with, uh, uh, is it Paul? Paul Gallant. Paul Gallant, yeah. Uh, we have a regular guest as one of your producers, Jessamine McIntyre, has been on the show twice. She looked after me last October and I recorded our 100th episode in one of your studios at 710. So, Oh, that's awesome. Next time you see her, just make sure you give her a tray of is it mortadello ham, Adam. Yeah, mortadello. We, we, we always <laughs> do like our least favorite meat with our American guests, which <laughs> you're not avoiding the question, Danny. I'm just softening you up. Don't worry. <laughs> and uh, mortadella was, was jessamine. So uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't give her any, especially the, the stuff studded with olives. She, she hates okay. that. <laughs> that's right. But she, she obviously was over covering the team for the Oakland. Yeah. Had a great time. And so we became friends there because we, we're quite friendly with yeah, Michael Shonduga from The Athletic. And so we were hanging out. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if there's one thing, that, yeah, Stu and I always say this, you know, the amount of friends we've been able to make just from following the same stupid sports team 5,000 miles away, it's just, it's testament to, you know, why sports is such a great thing. I forget, you know, what happens on the field is, is almost inconsequential, depending on, yeah, the, you know, based on the life memories and, and friends you can make on the way, which is, is fantastic. It's absolutely great. And I love these sort of things. And it's been a pleasure to meet you guys. Really, really cool. Uh, Adam, do you want to ask the food question? The what question? The food question. Well, yeah, I mean, least favorite meat. Yeah, we have to know. The, pe- the people <laughs> need to know. See, I, I like pretty much everything. <laughs> I, I, w- I would say that the least favorite thing that I've eaten was there was a toad when I was in China with mm-hmm. my in-laws. And so both of my... my my wife was born in, in Southern California, but her parents emigrated from, from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And so when I've traveled with them and one of my habits has been that I eat anything that's put in front of me, like I will, there's, there's nothing that I'm going to turn down. So like in Hong Kong, I've eaten chicken speed, I've eaten snake, I've eaten bugs at the street market in Beijing. Like there's, there's nothing I'm not going to eat. And there was one time we got a stir fried toad. And the toad, I saw them carry the toad 
So it was like this little fat toad that they came and got and like carried it upstairs. And like when I ate it, I was like, okay, this is nasty. <laughs> it's this a real is... shame it didn't jump the stairs just to I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like the whole thing. So I, if you were going to ask me that, that's the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Toads. And I think you can throw frog legs in there too. What did it taste like? It was kind of, it was kind of rubbery. Like that's, that's the best way that I could, I could describe it. Cause everybody will say like, Oh, it tasted like chicken, but it was just, it was, it was too chewy. It was the texture that got me. And I was just like, Oh yeah. So, and I think the visual didn't help. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would suggest just, just go for like turkey as your least favorite, but you've gone like way out there with the frogs. So I'm so happy with the answer. It's been great. It's been great. Yeah, it's a bit different from Marjorie Harper saying coconut, I guess, isn't it as well? Coconut? Coconut's yeah. delicious. Oh, yeah. I know, I know. You can't get yeah. the stuff these days. No, we had, we, yeah. we had a, and I thought we, at the Raiders, I was undrafted guy, and he's, he says least favorite food was coconut. Oh, what? Wow. Yeah. Crazy maybe person. Maybe, maybe that's why he went undrafted. Who knows? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah, so where where can people follow you and read all your stuff? And obviously, this I think we can listen to the show via yeah, yeah via podcast. Yeah, you can you can get it on podcast. There's an yeah. app, the Seven Ten Sports app, or you can do that online at Seven Ten Sports. And you can follow me on Twitter at Danny O'Neill, um, D A N N Y O N E I L, and. Yeah, this is this is great. It was really fun to talk to you guys. Great. Cool. Thanks so much for uh, yeah. you know. I'm sure you could have done so many more interesting things like eat your pizza and play with your dog. Uh, <laughs> ended up with us idiots, but we, we yeah. massively appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was it was great to talk to you guys. Thanks, Danny. Russell is such an extraordinary man, and he had he came to us with a mentality that was an exceptional mentality. To the point where when we first were interviewing him back at the Combine years and years ago, uh, somebody had told me that Russell Wilson is going to tell you things that you're going to think aren't going to be able to be true. He's going to he's going to lay out this, he's going to say this, or say that. He said, if I were you, I would give him a chance to say what he wants to say and give it a chance to happen because it's really likely that he's going to bring, bring it to life. And this guy, he's done all of that. Russ, Russell Wilson has taught me that, uh, that somebody can be so that a person can live a life and be so extraordinarily consistently confident and believe in himself and 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 make it come to work every day.